0: First, could we raise bald eagles, young bald eagles to become fully feathered, flight capable, independent eagles that would survive without a parent there to teach them anything? And of course, second, the huge question, would they survive to adulthood and stay in the general vicinity to breed once they became adults? Now I should throw in a couple of, of facts here about eagle biology. Um, eaglets when they're hatched are in the nest from 10 to 13 weeks so figure roughly three months that's a long time for eaglets to be in a nest so i was saying we're them them about six weeks of age maybe seven weeks of age that's about halfway through their fledging process so they're in the nest a long time so we were babysitting these eaglets uh for another at least six weeks, but as it turned out, we will talk about later, we were actually babysitting for two to three months after they went into the town. The bushwhacks were some of uh, the worst days
1: I've ever had in the mountains, or life, really. And I told people, well,
0: never underestimate the Catskills, okay? You can't underestimate them. Why the Catskills is such a great place for trout.
1: It is really the development of New York State. Catskills were responsible. Yeah!
0: Now you're listening to Inside the Line, the Catskills.
1: So, um, Peter, are you familiar with the Canadian Rockies?
0: Not very much.
1: All right. So um, there's a place called Moraine Lake. It's a very photogenic, beautiful place. Uh, I went there, What I think it was five years ago. At like 9.30 a.m., I got an actual parking spot right in there. Uh, I think there's only like 50 parking spots, but this is, place is absolutely stunning. Uh, Parks Canada just recently announced that they're closing the parking lot, and now you have to take a shuttle into there because it's gotten so popular. Um people this place gets the parking lot gets full at 3 30 a.m
0: a.m. Sounds like uh Baxter State Park when you're trying to get into Katahdin
1: Oh really? Is that what it's like?
0: Yeah, they they limit the number of people they allow in each day at each parking lot. So my wife and I when we did it with our kids, we basically got there about two in the morning, slept in the car when the gate opened at six o'clock in the morning, we were already fourth in line. So
1: <laughs> how was that, by the way, did it, was it, was it awesome?
0: Very awesome. Yeah. I've done Katahdin three times now and uh, is just, it's a beautiful hike. All all of the, there's 14 of the 4,000 peaks uh, up in Maine. You know, oh, wow. I've done all 115, 111, 4,000 in the Northeast here. So um 14 of them were in maine and my buddies and i went up for two weeks and just knocked them all off but uh north brother and and uh Codden and uh just, just abraham there's just they're beautiful hikes really nice
1: yeah definitely the wildlife up there is absolutely phenomenal
0: yeah we saw some moose while we were hiking
1: I'm jealous i'm very jealous yeah so they um <laughs> they close the parking lot there and you have to take a shuttle that'll take like 15 20 minutes out of there but you know i on instagram and and facebook i posted a picture i got there um like i said i arrived at 9 30 2018 and i got one of the most majestic views ever in 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 the history of of the world and and it was just absolutely stunning and uh it really stinks but yeah yeah oh yeah it it stinks but i suggest if anybody has to do anything in North America, it has to be the Canadian Rockies because it's unforgettable. It's absolutely stunning. Now,
0: is that was that in BC or Alberta or where? Alberta, Alberta.
1: Okay. It's Banff National Park.
0: I, I have been to Lake Louise and I uh, in Banff many, many years ago, but we didn't do any hiking per se up there.
1: But still, you you saw the lake and, and the mountains. It's majestic, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah.
1: Oh, that- just gorgeous. Did you do anything else up there?
0: Uh, we went to the uh, we went to the Calgary Stampede area there. Um, oh, nice! But, uh,
1: when you drove through the Canadian Rockies, it was it was phenomenal, wasn't it? Just driving is phenomenal.
0: You, oh yeah, it's, it's it's gorgeous area. But you know, there's a lot to be said for a lot of other areas. You know, I hiked the uh, North Cascades up in uh, Washington State uh, about three years ago with my buddies. And that was spectacular, also. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, I have hiked the uh, the oat route in uh, from France, from uh, Chamonix oh, wow. to Zermatt in Switzerland. And boy, it doesn't get much better than that, you know, hiking the Swiss Alps. And-
1: yeah, that's a that's a that's a bucket list of mine. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. How was the flight over there?
0: Uh, not not bad, not bad at all. Flew into Zurich uh, one time. Part of why I did this, the Oat Route, which is about 100 miles from Chamonix to uh, to uh, Zermatt, was to train for the Matterhorn. Because the first time I I went to uh, Zermatt and saw the Matterhorn, I just said I've got to come back here and climb that. That that's nice. just too awesome. So uh, in 2017, I did that. I went back and climbed the Matterhorn and successfully summited. So that was quite a quite a bonus to to get that done because a lot of people go there and you know if you've ever seen pictures or gone to the Matterhorn it's usually enshrouded in clouds and they get ridiculous storms up high so you can't even you can't even approach it when there's you know afternoon weather up there but we got very lucky and and got in and out of there before the storms hit
1: nice Wow, Matterhorn. That's that's a. I've heard of a. I've I've read a lot of stories about Matterhorn. Like people uh, having rough times on Matterhorn.
0: Yeah, well, about fifty percent of the people don't make it, and uh, boy, if you get off the trail, you know there's about a two foot window that you you're walking on, and if you get off that, you slip, you die. Uh, it's, wow. it's actually two two Japanese climbers, and most people get hurt on the way down. Surprisingly, but two Japanese climbers when we were doing it fell on their way down i think they were just in too big a hurry and so yeah. i've got pictures of the helicopter rescue helicopter coming in below us and uh you know getting the guys out on a lift on a on a you know tow line and stuff it was pretty spectacular to watch
1: can imagine wow yeah so um other than that, I got some stickers out. I was gonna I, I heard of a a hiker that passed away on Mount Baldy. Maldi. Uh, it was a woman that uh, I knew from social media that she was climbing Mount Baldy in California and she dropped seven to eight hundred feet. Uh, uh, that's one horrible death, but um you'll probably hear about it soon because it's it's crazy, but I just heard about this the other day. so
0: um, yeah, I hadn't heard that. Never been up Mount Baldy. I've climbed Whitney twice. It's right next door. It's near that. Uh, I'm not sure.
1: Um, yeah, it's. It's. I mean, it's not insane. It's only like, I think it's like 50, 60 miles away. Okay. Nice. Also, stickers. I got my stickers from Catskill Vinyl, uh, I think, of about a couple days ago, four or five days ago. I sent them out. So, uh, if you want stickers, let me know. I will send them out to you uh, free of charge. Uh, send me a PM on Instagram or Facebook if you want one for free. So. Let me know what I you love think. One. <laughs> oh, well, excellent. I'm writing that down, Pete. Definitely. All right. <laughs> excellent. So um welcome everybody to episode 61 of Inside the Line, the Catskills. I have Pete Nye here with me, who was a big had a big role in the bald eagle restoration project back in the nineteen eighties. Uh 1970s, 1980s, correct? 1990s.
0: <laughs> right through 2010. Yeah. You know? Wow,
1: wow, yeah so this was uh for for me growing up as a kid, it was really big because we had a bald eagle's nest over in the Sydney area and we very rarely saw bald eagles and that spot was a big spot for tourism because of the bald eagles and the bald eagles were very rare and when I was young, they were on the verge of extinction um up here in New York State and i'm I'm sure probably other places as well but it was a huge project and uh, Pete was a big part in it. And I have been looking forward to this for a long time. I can't believe it took me so long to get you on here. My God, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have waited.
0: Yeah, glad to be here.
1: Yeah, Pete's here to talk about the Bald Eagle Restoration Project. And uh, I can't wait. So thank you to the monthly supporters, Darren White, Vicky Ferreira, John Comiskey, Jim C., Michael Bongner, David Mead, Matt Smith, and Sharon Klein. Thank you for contributing to the show. Also, big thank you to Outdoor Chronicles for being sponsor of the show. Molly from Outdoor Chronicles Photography Specials in Adventure Elopement and Adventure Couple Photography in the Catskills, Adirondacks, and White Mountains. Also, don't forget your pets because they are just as important. Uh, she is also an officiant for Getting Married and a Licensed Guide, so don't hesitate to get a hold of Molly on all platforms. Thank you, Molly, and thank you, Outdoor Chronicles, for being a sponsor. What are you drinking tonight, Pete? I heard we we talked a little bit earlier. What are you having?
0: I'm having a uh, Fire Tower Red IPA from the Westkill Brewery that I picked up into my hike just this past Saturday, and it's quite delicious. Nice folks over there at Westkill Brewery.
1: What a great place, right?
0: Yes. Nice atmosphere. Nice, you know, nice company. It was packed with with hikers and people, uh, lots of outdoor fires going so you could warm up Nice ambiance inside by the bar. Nice folks.
1: Yeah, right. I, you know, um, I was talking about that place a couple episodes ago about how and like, God, I remember when I started hiking, that was just a little, little tiny dot on the map and only the big hikers and uh, stuff would go there for a drink after the hike, you know, after you did a long hike in West Hill, Southwest Hunter, stuff like that. Um, right. And now, now it's, it's awesome. It's huge. And I am so happy because that's a middle of goddamn nowhere.
0: It is definitely out in nowhere. Yeah. You have to go there.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad people are enjoying it. And uh, I was just there actually two weekends ago. So I, I went up to the West Hill native American sculpture structures site if you've ever been up there, um, when you're hiking up Westkill Mountain, you look over to your left at one time and you'll see some big, massive cairns. And they were supposedly Native American landscape uh structures that signified a, a couple things, solstice uh patterns in the sky. Uh we don't know uh yet, but I I in my last episode I had a chat about this. Uh and you were previous up there, correct?
0: You mean um Westkill? Or, yeah,
1: yeah, you you hiked. Uh, you said you were right, right up in that area, correct?
0: Oh yeah. Well, we hiked Rusk and Hunter, which nice. I've done se- several times that that loop. But uh, one of my hiking buddies, that was his last one to finish up the uh, Catskill 3,500. So um, he needed Rusk. So Rusk is such an easy hike from the road down there that we just went on and did uh, Hunter as well. And it was surprising how little snow there was. There was like an inch of fresh snow from the rain that we got, you know, a couple of days before. And that was it. I mean, the ground was pretty well not even frozen. So no no shoes, no nothing.
1: Yeah, it's very odd. It's very, very odd to go hiking. And there's nothing up there in January, (laughs) beginning of January. Yeah. Did you have views uh, when you got up to Hunter?
0: Uh, yes, especially if you go up the fire tower. Yeah, nice. Beautiful, beautiful views looking up toward, uh, you know, the uh, Wyndham area and uh, Blackhead, Black Dome, Thomas Cole, that whole ridge there stood right out, little coating of snow on the top, but uh, always cold and windy when you go up the fire tower at Hunter, but well worth the view.
1: I agree. I definitely agree. That's a nice hike. I I also this this couple of days ago, two two days ago, I went up to Hawket, and uh, that's a nice hike, isn't it? That's just like Rusk.
0: That's a beautiful hike, and uh, a lot of people can't find the canister up at Helcut You know, it's it's a little weird to try and find that, but uh, yeah, again, I've done that probably two or three times, and uh, that is a nice hike. You know, follow the creek all the way for a long ways, and
1: yep. That's one hell of a gorge, isn't it? That's a that's a steep gorge.
0: It is that whole area leading down to Devil's Tombstone down there. Yeah, that's a that's a big gorge.
1: Yeah, yeah. We uh, we did that, and then right afterwards, right off the Hawket is uh, ceremonial landscapes crushers by the Native Americans. So we checked that out. There's a lot of the big Karens up there. It's actually very very cool. I don't know. Have you heard about that there?
0: No, I have. I have not.
1: Right. So when you're when you're starting off you follow a little tiny bit of the creek for probably not even a tenth of a mile and you head what south and you'll start seeing these these Karens. and some of them are the size of a people some of them are the size of a car and uh supposedly so you'd have
0: to so you'd have to cross the creek to yep. to get to these yeah
1: okay and and uh it's 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 really really cool you know it's a, it's a big mystery it's a big question of what they are and why they're there hmm. so i'll check it out
0: sometime yeah
1: yeah definitely let me know when you're going I'll, I'll I'll join you on that i love checking out that stuff okay yeah so um news catskill news volunteer um also it, it like like pete said there's a there's an inch of snow up top so still bring your traction because you never know when you're going to need it up top when it freezes over and then you know, melts and freezes back over again. So just bring your traction with you. It's an extra pound and a half and it'll probably save your life. So.
0: And it builds character. Exactly.
1: You know, when the first time when you wear those, don't you feel like immortal, like you can conquer anything.
0: just about. Yes.
1: Yeah. Right. My wife tried them on. I think it was like last year and uh, she was like a little skeptical. And then when she started going up the ice, she was just like, wow, this is like incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait until you try snowshoes and you break trail. You're going to hate it. (laughs) But excellent. So, uh, Pete, do you mind if we go into a quick thing of Catskill Mountain history?
0: No, go for it.
1: Yes. So I got this from my new book that I got. Well, it's not new. It's actually uh, one of the originals, uh, Catskill Mountain House by Robert Van Zelt. So Original copy, I can't I can't wait to get dig more into it, but I found this about Catterskill Falls in that book. So um, here we go. Uh, a few minutes' drive from the center of Haynes Falls takes the modern motorist along the upper end of the old mountain road in 1965 to the still-existing Laurel House and the imperishable beauty of Catterskill Falls. As unknown today as a casual visitor, as a history of Sleepy Hollow, Catterskill Falls was once at a time far more popular than its picturesque rival at the head of Catterskill Falls, which is Deerleaf Falls, and indeed one of the most famous sites of the East. Higher than Niagara Falls, though lacking the breadth, it attracted hundreds of sightseers during any given summer of the last century and became a well-featured subject of American journalism and a favorite motive of American landscape painting. It was the jewel of the upper Catskills, an indestructible symbol of the scenic access in the outer domain of the Catskill Mountain House. Long before the founding of the Mountain House, the Falls had already acquired the modest fame and local lore of legend in early New York's history. Dearly early Dutch settlers of the Hudson Valley learned about them through the legends of the Mohican Indians, and during the 18th century they became famous landmark to the hunters and trappers who first invaded the mountains. By 1800, when James Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving were young men, there can be no doubt that the beauties of fall have become a common knowledge among the more cultured classes of the Hudson Valley. In another decade, sightseers began to chisel their names in the rocky ledges, at the head of the falls, leaving evidence of growing popularity of the spectacular phenomenon. By 1820, the falls have become familiar enough to give rise to some extraordinary antics as part of the young people of the neighboring villages of the Hudson Valley. One story still makes its way around the Catskills. From time memoriam until July 4th, 1820, a great boulder weighing some 50 tons and estimated to be about 175 feet in circumference, rested precariously on the very lip of the Catterskill Falls. Deciding it was fair game for a novel way of celebrating the national holiday, a group of young blades from Catskills and Cairo spent the night of July 3rd in the vicinity of the halls, and the early next morning gathered together at the head of the falls and proceeded to execute a bit of mischief. With much heaving and pushing, huffing and extraordinary puffing, they managed to topple the boulder onto the mighty abyss. The effect, according to some con- uh, contemporary account, was awful and sublime. The crash was tremendous exceeding the loudest thunder, the tremendous motion of the earth, and the long murmuring echo rolling from point to point through the ravine gave the scene an indescribable degree of grandeur. The rock was shattered in a thousand pieces. Toasts were then drunk and volleys of musketry fired. In 1820, the wild preempted state of the Catterskill Falls encouraged such youthful cappers. No hotel stood at the hap- head of the falls. No road connected to it with primitive communities of Hunter or Tannersville or made it accessible to the old wood road going down the mountain from the ledges of pine orchard. nor would it have made much a difference if such road existed. In eighteen twenty there was a fall where still a local rather gather than a national phenomenon, and the cats goes a whole an undeveloped wilderness suitable only to hunting, trapping, and laundering The catterskill falls are especially exciting because of their location within the hidden recesses and folds of the mountains, completely invisible until one has reached the crest of the 260-foot drop they confirm a childlike fantasy as a high mountainous landscape full of unexpected wonders. Descending the steep walls of the ravine on either side of the falls, one encounters a great cavern first described by James Fenimore Cooper. It is a feature that cannot be duplicated in any other falls of the Capscales, let alone northeast, and helps makes it one of the most picturesque formations in the east coast, Catterskill Falls, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. You agree, Pete?
0: Yes, yeah, definitely right up there. Beautiful spot,
1: yeah. So that's pretty cool stuff. I never knew about the boulder, did you?
0: No, but I, I was thinking about it as you were reading it. If, if the road and the traffic that's usually on that road, you know, I was there at that time, I'm, I'm thinking. Man, that boulder could go all the way down. You know, maybe
1: hit the road, hit a car. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I gotta admit, what did it say? Fifty tons? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, something else. So yeah, little Catskill Mountain history taken from the Catskill Mountain House by uh, Robert Van Zelt.
0: Great Very stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me do that, uh, Pete. Sometimes people don't like uh, staying here for an extra five to seven minutes, <laughs> so
0: no problem They're very interesting
1: yeah how about we get on to the guests of the night um pete and I and the bald eagle restoration project in new york state let's go all right pete thank you for joining me so much I, i've been very excited to do this my pleasure yeah so uh why don't you get a little background about yourself and then we'll start getting into some questions and you can do talk about all things bald eagle restoration
0: all right well just real quickly i mean uh Environmental conservation was in my mind ever since I was a, a young boy. And indeed, when I got out of high school, that's that's what I did. I went to college, uh, went to Morrisville for a two-year degree in, in environmental conservation work and transferred to the College of Forestry at Syracuse uh, for a degree in, in wildlife management. And uh, then went on to get my master's in biology and uh my first job with the state of New York, DEC, was working for the wildlife pathologist up here in Delmar, New York, a guy named Ward Stone, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, kind of a famous guy. Um, nice. Maybe before your time there, Stash, but uh, <laughs> he was quite a character. And uh, he taught me a lot of, lot of things about wildlife pathology and uh, disease and wildlife and things like that. But I went on. I got lucky and got a job with the DEC shortly after I worked for Pathology in 1974. I was offered a job either in the big game unit, working with bear, or in a new unit that they were just setting up called the Endangered Species Unit, and that sounded very exciting to me, so I jumped at that, and so I was one of three people hired to start and uh, run with an endangered species program in New York, starting in 1974. If you want to get into some background about how New York got involved in that, I can give it to you. But I don't. I could go on for probably longer than your viewers want to hear. So,
1: <laughs> oh I'll no, I've be been
0: anytime, but
1: no, no, they, they they love hearing this, and they love uh, deep background. So, are you where are you originally from?
0: I'm originally from up here around Albany from Delmar New York. I lived probably half time in Syracuse. My parents were divorced. My father lived in Syracuse. So I lived in Syracuse about half time and Albany the other half time, but I kind of consider Delmar and and the Albany area my home mostly.
1: Nice. And uh, so you're a New York native. So that's good.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Excellent. So like this uh the the extinction project basically not with the bald eagles but the one that you got into um what made you go after that just the excitement of this being brand new
0: yes being brand new um i was never really a hunter as a as a kid you know going through high school and things like that so i think i gravitated more to rare wildlife and saving wildlife and things like that i thought that was a little more exciting track for me to take than and dealing with um, game animals and harvest statistics and uh, setting seasons and all that kind of stuff. Not that it's not necessary, but just that it wasn't my cup of tea. I just thought that rare species work. I mean, my God, how many people get the opportunity to, you know, deal with rare species? Yeah. So, you know that that program, as I said, began really in in 1974 because in 1973, the Federal Endangered Species Act was passed in the United States. Uh, Before that, no state really had any kind of a program to deal with rare wildlife. And uh, that not only prompted states to get involved with that, but it also offered money to states to do the actual programming and set up their own endangered species program. So in our first year uh, in New York, we we qualified for and got over $400,000 uh, a year for setting up our own Endangered Species Program. We were one of the first 11 states in the United States to take advantage of this program.
1: Wow. What else uh, besides the bald eagles were on that list? Did we have anything else uh, at that time?
0: Absolutely. Uh, a little mammal called the Indiana bat was nationally endangered at that time. Uh, a little Lepidopteran, a butterfly called the carner blue butterfly, was endangered at that time. We were looking at that. Peregrine falcon, another one oh, that wow. was on the list that we were dealing with. Part of the, the effort in the Endangered Species Program in New York, uh, it was kind of multi-pronged efforts, but one was dealing with species that the federal government had already declared endangered or threatened, So there was a list and there were species we had to deal with. But the other huge effort on our part that we recognized right away is that we need to look at all the wildlife in New York State and create our own list on the state level of endangered and threatened species, which required us to look at, you know, all the vertebrate and invertebrate species in New York as best we could and say, okay, these are the ones we think are the rarest endangered put them on the list, threaten just a little bit less rare, put them on the list and then go about actually studying their status, uh, trying to understand why they might be declining and then develop programs to try and enhance their situation. So it was all very exciting.
1: Yeah. It was all over the place. It doesn't sound like just bald eagles and stuff like that. Like you had, like you said, uh, invertebrates and stuff like that. Like, um, Butterflies, wow! That's and the peregrine falcons. I never knew they. I knew they were on the the edge. You know, they were they were protected, but I didn't know they were endangered.
0: They were federally endangered, and uh, actually, the peregrine falcon was sort of the uh, animal that the, the efforts on that led to us being able to deal with a lot of the bald eagle restoration work that we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Um, so the peregrine, peregrine kind of led the way, but yes, we dealt with a whole lot of species. And uh, the reason we got into bald eagles uh, right away in in the early 1970s was we we looked at everything we were we were tasked with. We looked at the federal list. We we knew immediately that eagles were one of the, if not the most endangered animal in New York State. Peregrine falcons. Had disappeared. We had no more peregrine falcons in the state. Bald eagles had functionally disappeared. We had one breeding pair left in the entire state of New York in 1974 at one nest uh, south of Rochester on Hemlock Lake. And that pair hadn't been productive for probably 10 years because the female was contaminated with DDT, which as you probably know and most of your viewers uh, who have read anything about this know that DDT, one of its breakdown products called DDE, uh, creates thin shelled eggs that raptors like peregrine falcons, bald eagles, ospreys lay their eggs. And if they're, you know, uh, encumbered with DDT and DDE, the eggshells are so thin that as the birds try to incubate these eggs, they break before they can hatch. In the case of bald eagles, 35 days is the time they sit on an egg before it hatches. So that's a long time to sit on a a thin shelled egg. And this is exactly what was happening to our last remaining nest. These poor two adult bald eagles were trying to breed every year. Bless their hearts. Uh, she would lay eggs, but they would never hatch. So that's how we, we kind of settled on the eagles and said, you know, what do we need to do? One of the first things we did was to look at all the historic literature of bald eagles in New York State and identify all the locations where we were certain that they once nested in the state. Then look at those habitats, those places, and say, are any of those still suitable for, for nesting by bald eagles back in New York State? What can we expect if we actually go about trying to restore eagles in New York um, in terms of numbers that might re-nest here and, and locations that still might be suitable? So that was a big effort that took a couple of years just to get that data set in line, and then use that as we as we move forward.
1: So, so basically, you knew uh, as kind of like an overview, you knew the bald eagle population was was falling quite dramatically. You had one nest available up in Rochester, and that was what got into gear to say we need to help these bald eagles, especially when exactly. the, and especially when it was uh, the the our national. Uh, like creature creature right our national icon
0: (laughs) well yes and uh but no in that that didn't come into play and and actually we took criticism uh when this program as i said it took a couple of years to gather the background decide on an approach and when we launched the eagle restoration project in 1976 we were accused of uh just doing it as a bicentennial stunt because that was the bicentennial the 200 bicentennial year and uh people said oh it's just because it's a national symbol you're gonna throw money away down a rat hole you know this this has nothing to do with it ddt is still a problem yada 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 so we did take some criticism because it was the national symbol but that wasn't part of our we were looking at things biologically not politically yeah
1: that's ridiculous! Wow, I can't believe th- people would think about that. Can't believe, oh yeah, people would think about that as for any animal like on extinction. Like, ah, uh, yeah, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, people people come up with some weird things every once in a while. But the, the DDT argument, um, DDT was banned in the United States in 1972, and I'm proud to say that was banned in New York State in 1971, a year earlier. Nice. So we did know that ddt was still around a little bit but that the the levels were dropping very fast and we really felt that we did have an option to try and bring back eagles into the environment and we knew there were places that still looked good still had major food supplies still had good habitat limited human disturbance and we said you know we think it's worth an effort
1: now could you uh break down for the listeners uh I know DDT means the thin shells and stuff like that, but what causes DDT is that uh, a huge difference in in the lead that's that's causing the bald eagles to have problems nowadays. But what was the DDT from?
0: DDT was uh, invented during World War II as a topical pesticide. It was used, yeah, it was used for an insecticide, basically uh, mosquitoes, you know, malaria, things like that, and it, it it proved so effective that. You know, later, when, when the war was over and back in the 50s and 60s, you know, we started, we, meaning the United States, started spraying it heavily for mosquito control. Uh, when were you born, Stash? If you 1982. Don't mind. <laughs> okay. We'll see. So you missed a lot of this. But in the 60s, did you ever see Rachel Carson's tape, Silent Spring, the movie? Negative. Okay. Well, you know about Rachel Carson, right? yep yeah and and she sounded the alarm about DDT in the 60s. and uh, thank God she did. But in the movie that was made about all this, and I remember this as a kid in the 60s growing up, I was 10 years old in 1960. so you know I grew up all through the 60s, there used to be trucks that would come around your neighborhood and fog DDT all over your yard. They would wow. go around camping sites at lakes. And all the swimmers and people that were on the beach, people were like, had their arms up and they would be dancing on the beach. Spray me, spray me. Oh, my God. My God is right. It was unbelievable. We, you know, we thought DDT was a miracle cure for mosquitoes and it was used heavily. It was sprayed on croplands. It was sprayed on people, sprayed over trees. Maine used it heavily. In their forests that's how it got into the environment 60s and 70s 50s 60s 70s banned in in 1971 and 72. wow
1: wow i never knew about uh, that kind of craziness
0: (laughs) yeah it just goes to show you you know what we think is a panacea right now often doesn't turn out to be right
1: yeah correct so what was your uh, role in this in this bald eagle restoration project, Pete?
0: Okay, so I was one of the first three hired to set up the endangered species program and run with it. We decided on the bald eagle, and uh, my two bosses uh, in this early endangered species effort helped write up the program. And... Uh, my immediate boss, uh, a guy named Lowell Suring, was the unit leader of the new endangered species unit at DEC, and uh, really high quality guy. Did a great job, but within a year of setting up the endangered species unit, he left to go back to school out west and get his PhD. And even though I was a green biologist still at the time, I was tapped to run the unit, so I became the unit leader. And uh, the bald eagle project was one of our primary projects. We were involved heavily with the bats and with peregrine falcons. We were doing some osprey work all through the Adirondacks, um, things like that. But I started with the eagle program. I inherited it. um, And before it got off the ground, Lowell had left. So 1976 was really our first year of the program. And I intercepted the leadership role of that, and kind of the rest is history. I was I led that the whole way, and even though the unit got bigger and bigger over over the years, uh, at one point we had like nine biologists. I had biologists in charge of every taxonomic unit uh, within the Endangered Species Program. We had a, an ichthyologist, we had an invertebrate biologist. We had a mammologist, a herpetologist to work with reptiles and amphibians. We had an avian bi- biologist just dealing with other birds. So we, we had a, a humming program. But since I started with the program early on and since I was starting with bald eagles, that was always my love. And I, even though I was a manager at that point and I had all these responsibilities, I kind of jealously clung to the bald eagle work and, uh, Loved it so much, you know, even though it was like an extra burden to try and do all the field work, at the same time I was trying to run the the whole program, I just kept at it. You know, I love climbing trees, banding eagles, capturing eagles, uh, anything, you know, I'll sit in a blind for 16 hours overnight, whatever, just watching an eagle nest to see how they're behaving, you name it.
1: Yeah, I've seen your pictures and I've seen, you know, the reports and stuff like that. And you... Were a very good hands-on kind of guy with the eagles. You made like a a, a a relationship with the eagles.
0: Absolutely, yeah. They hold a very special place in my heart. You know, just uh, an incredible organism. Yeah. If you just look in the eye of a bald eagle, I mean, it is so intense. It's just
1: you know an amazing. I agree with you on that. I have um, near me about a quarter mile down from my house is a bald eagle's nest. the The crazy thing is, it's right next to a feed mill, like massive feed mill that runs off of the railroad. And I can't believe it's there.
0: Well, you know, more and more as as this program, as you well know, has, has just gone beyond incredible, you know, comeback uh, beyond anybody's imagination, but. As more and more nests get accrue, yeah, we're getting eagles in in, you know, places we would never have thought before that they would tolerate. And uh I think a large part of that is that it it totally depends on on the type of activity around a nest. We have nests up and down the Hudson River right off the railroad, you know, Mm -hmm. where railroad these high speed Amtrak trains are going, you know, several times a day, whizzing by, and uh, you know. The eagles get used to a continuous and non-threatening type of activity like that. The thing they don't like is you stop your car near that eagle nest, you get out of the car, and you you look, you make eye contact with those eagles, or you start walking toward it, they're going to freak out. But yeah. if it's traffic going by on Route 88, or trains going by on the highway, or something like that, or a farmer farming his fields and tractor fine you know they know it's not a threat they can deal with that
1: wow that's a yeah i see them all the time and i i see i gotta admit i stop every time to to take a look because they're they're just so majestic they're i can see why they are um like our national bird and icon basically because it is a powerful uh, just to see them st- like standing there up on top of a tree branch or something like that. It's just I I I understand your love for them.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So, uh, what other agencies were there? Any other agencies involved in this besides the DEC?
0: There was uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was deeply involved in this when we got going because uh, they had to they had to basically permit what we wanted to do with bald eagles. There's a very One of the strongest environmental laws in the country still is, is the Bald Eagle Protection Act of 1940. And uh, that says a lot of different things, like you you can't even pick up and hold a bald eagle feather. Uh, You can't harass, disturb, harm, worry any bald eagles, which is very widely uh, defined as far as what disturbance is. So anyway, very, very strong law. So the federal government takes a a very active role in bald eagle protection and permitting. So we definitely had to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they were the ones that were funding our work with the endangered species early on. So, um, yeah, they were very involved.
1: Excellent. Yeah. If if anybody doesn't know, the New York State um, DEC is Department of Environmental Conservation. So they protect a lot of the land, they protect a lot of the species that are in New York state. And it's it's a wonderful, wonderful program and a wonderful, like the people that I know in the DEC are awesome. And uh, I, Pete, I thank you for what you do. You guys are very awesome for the the state of New York. You guys do it very well. Well,
0: Thanks for that.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm really curious of how this was done kind of like step-by-step. What was the first step in, in the restoration project?
0: Okay. Well, the first step, as I said, we had one unproductive nest left in the entire state, two adult bald eagles. What do you do? Well, it had been tried in Maine to substitute what we might consider good bald eagle eggs for the bad eggs that might break before they could hatch. Um, That has a lot of issues, and we never tried that. But let me just explain that you know the the temperature that a bald eagle egg needs to be maintained at at ninety nine degrees for you know basically as long as it's it's being incubated, um, very hard to keep that temperature. So all right, looking at at the East the United States where where there were a few eagles left in the Chesapeake Bay. There were a few left in Maine. other than that, they were pretty well gone. There were some in Florida, obviously, but um, so where do you go to get eggs to you know help out bald eagles? Well, the state of Maine went to the Midwest, to Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, which have had a pretty good eagle population. Um, so think about that. Think about traveling to, to Minnesota, say, uh, finding a, a pair of eagles that are on eggs, climbing the tree, disturbing them off the eggs. <laughs> getting those eggs into an incubation case quickly down the tree back onto an airplane back to Maine, climb another tree, try to push the eagles off the nest that they're on in Maine put in these these theoretically good eggs that are still viable and get out of there quickly and hope for the best. well that's that's a lot that can go wrong yeah. and uh, a lot did go wrong the efficacy of that that effort, was very low, not that many. First of all, it's very hard to get eagles to, you know, they're very sensitive. So you disturb them off a nest, they may not even come back when you put oh, an wow. egg in there. You might come back to the nest, and that did happen. They would just abandon the nest. Like, what are you doing up here? I'm freaking out. <laughs> so, so we knew about that, and we chose not to do that. What we did choose to do was to see if we could foster some captive bred eaglets into this pair that we had left over the idea was okay let them sit on their egg that we know we're going to break before 35 days let them sit on that egg for as long as we could possibly do that but before the eggs broke and they abandoned the nest so you want them to stay long enough so they become committed to the nesting process Because the longer they are sitting on the egg, the more committed they are to that breeding effort. So the idea was to get this young chick. And by the way, the chicks were being bred at a place called the Patuxent Wildlife Center down in Laurel, Maryland, that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service ran. And the reason they they were breeding adult bald eagles and producing chicks was they were doing pesticide contamination research on these eagles. Um, so they sometimes had a surplus of young, uh, chicks that were captive bred. So make a long story short, we got in touch with them. We'd fly down to Patuxent, uh, get in the first case, uh, a baby eaglet about two and a half weeks old, fly it back up to New York, wait for our pair to sit on the eggs for two or three weeks, just long enough. So they're really intent on the breeding process. And then climb the tree on a nice day when it's warm enough that the chick won't die of hypothermia or something. And this all took place in April. So you'd wait for a nice, sunny, warm day, knowing that the the adults may not come back to the nest for, for hours or may not come back at all. You don't want the chick to die. So it's exactly what we did. The first year was 1978. We climbed the tree. Uh my longtime best buddy, Mike Allen from Western New York, and I put the chick in the nest, got the heck out of there as absolutely quickly as possible, and sat back on the road with our spotting scopes and watched. And the adults were perched about 100 yards off off on the hillside. We had a beautiful view of the nest in the hillside on the far side of Hemlock Lake. We could see what was going on. And they just sat in these trees, you know, like a 100 yards away, watching, you know, watching us, watching the nest for probably three hours. So, you know, this was, you know, a huge experiment at that time. You know, are they going to come back? Will they accept the chick? Will they fly over and kill the chick knowing it's not theirs? Finally, after three hours, the female did fly around, circled the nest, took a look, went back and perched. He did that like two or three times before she finally came back and landed on the nest and actually started brooding the young chick where she was actually sit down on the chick and, and keep it warm. And we were obviously so ecstatic about this that just just a miracle that this actually worked. And I have to say, you know, somebody up above was watching over us because everything we've done has been kind of miraculous yeah. in, in its... In its um, uh, I can't think of anything else that might be attributed to it except obviously hard work, but somebody was looking over our shoulder and giving us a blessing and all this work. So anyway, that worked. That was 1978. The first eaglet was fledged from that nest in New York State in, that, by that time, probably 14 years. So... We were elated about that. And then going on the next year, we said, hey, why not get two chicks from Patuxent and do this again? So that worked in 1979. Went back to two chicks, worked again in 1980. We said, uh, you know, gee, this this is a pretty good deal. It got to the point, you know, I just kind of jokingly say that, you know, each year we did this, and we did this for about five years at that nest site just to increase uh, the population of young eagles flying in New York State. But each year we got there, I kept thinking, you know, the female was like waiting at the nest, tapping her fingers saying, where are those <laughs> guys? Where's my chick. Now oh, come on. It's time. <laughs> That's great. So each year, more and more, she would come back to the nest quicker and quicker. So, you know, she, would, she knew what was going to happen. She accepted it. And, you know, it was like, No question after that first one, she was accepting the chicks. So I think we fledged in that manner at that nest, six chicks in total over that time, six or seven. But now think about it from our perspective. You know, depending on who you talk to, what eagle biologists should talk to, you might have an estimate of 50% mortality of all the chicks that are fledged from eagle nests. Some people, one guy in Alaska estimated 90% ninety percent first year mortality for chicks fledged in Alaska from their nest. That's probably due to density of, of eagles up in Alaska. But point being taken that there's a high mortality of first year eagles after they leave the nest. So we're looking at this and saying, well, you know, this is this is a great success, but it's way too slow. Yeah. We want more eagles, you know, we only have one pair of eagles to deal with here. Uh, it's too slow. What else can we do? And that is where we use the peregrine falcon program to booster our bald eagle program. We knew that a guy named Tom Cade at Cornell University, noted ornithologist, a uh, wonderful ornithologist now passed away, but we knew that uh, Tom Cade and another guy from New Pulse, Heinz Meng had been involved in in captive breeding peregrine falcons and releasing them successfully into the wild by a project, a process called hacking, which is an old falconer's term, really meaning hand rearing to independence. So we got a hold of Tom and we said, do you think we could hack bald eagles in New York State as suitable habitat sites? And Tom thought about it for a while. And basically said let's give it a try you know no one else in the world had ever done this with bald eagles wow. and uh, he wow. helped us design a program which basically involved uh, putting up an artificial eyrie or nesting situation on a 35-foot tower at montezuma national wildlife refuge building a nest in a caged in situation uh, on top of that tower with a little blind on the side of that that nesting tower that we could sit in and and observe the eagles and feed them so they wouldn't get acclimated to human beings. And the idea was to put eaglets that were much older than the the ones we fostered. These eaglets would be six to seven weeks old, able to thermoregulate in the weather, able to rip food apart on their own so they didn't need to be fed, uh, things like that. So we'd get six to seven-week-old eaglets uh put them in this tower and raise them by feeding them uh, until they could fly on their own and fledge from this tower in a habitat that we chose that we knew was a historic bald eagle nesting situation had tremendous food supply had no human disturbance and basically it had given them every chance they could have to survive in that environment
1: pete they didn't have any parents you guys were the parents
0: no No adult bald eagles involved in this in the hacking process and that was one of the huge experimental aspects of this program you know could we first could we raise bald eagles young bald eagles to become fully feathered flight capable independent eagles that would survive without a parent there to teach them anything and of course second the huge question would they survive to adulthood and stay in the general vicinity to breed once they became adults? Now, I should throw in a couple of, of facts here about eagle biology. Um, eaglets, when they're hatched, are in the nest from 10 to 13 weeks. So figure roughly three months. That's a long time for eaglets to be in a nest. So I was saying we them at about six weeks of age, maybe seven weeks of age. That's about halfway through their fledging process. So they're in the nest a long time. So we were babysitting these eaglets, uh, for another at least six weeks. But as it turned out, they'll talk about later. We were actually babysitting for two, two to three months after they went into the tower. Um, the other thing is that bald eagles don't sexually mature until they're five years old. Oh, wow. So yeah. So, you know, you're thinking, okay, well, A, if we can get these eaglets to survive without any parental influence, that's one step. But the next step is, will they survive five years? Will they stay? Will they find another adult eagle? Could this all work? So Tom Cade helped us design the program. We got our first two eagles in 1976 from uh, Wild Nest in Wisconsin little factoid about that that may come into play if we continue talking about this later is that these two eaglets from Wisconsin nest were two of three. So as it turned out, I would have preferred eaglets from different nests, but turned Mm. out they were brother and sister from the same nest. Wow. We named them Henry and Agnes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you, would there be a a different like a female, male and a female in that same nest.
0: If say, would there be a difference in them?
1: No, no. Would there be a male and a female in the in that nest, or that you guys, the artificial nest?
0: Well, yes. That's we took a male and a female from one nest in Wisconsin and okay. put them in our artificial tower in New York. Yeah, put them together.
1: Wow. Yeah. And then did they? Uh, of course, later on, did they go off on their own and then finally come back and and mate, of course?
0: They did. Um, wow. Well, yeah, they, the first step, as I said, was, you know, we raised them for another six weeks until they were fully feathered. Then we opened up the cage, took the bars off the cage and let them take their first steps and flight and exercise out on perches that were going out from this, this cage. Um, so they could exercise their wings, you know increase their muscle, this kind of thing, but the only food they know about right now at this stage was at the tower at the mm. tower nest so, um, once they flew out into the marsh over Montezuma Marsh, they had to come back to get fed because they didn't know how to how to catch food on their own, even though the marsh there was full of carp I mean you could almost walk across the carp, which is <laughs> why <Wow. wider. laughs> I which is why we chose the place. But indeed, they did come back to the tower. Once they were flight strong, they flew back to the tower. And we kept feeding them until they wanted to wean off our food supplies. So they were there for another month to two months, um, feeding and getting stronger, learning what the marsh had for food, learning, learning what food is, and, and learning how to hunt on their own and so that was that in that fall in 1976 we shut the the site down we went back to our desks and prepared for 1977. we said hey that seemed to work pretty well that was two eaglets let's build another tower right adjacent to this tower and release four eaglets the next year actually it turned out we got five so we put three in one cage and two in the other so we released five e- eaglets in this area in nineteen seventy seven, four in nineteen seventy eight, four in nineteen seventy-nine, and another four, I think. No, we moved in nineteen eighty. So we were only in Montezuma for 76, 77 seven, four years. And uh released all these eagles. Well, so all these all these birds, I don't know what that adds up to. That's two and five, that's seven Mm -hmm. Seven, (laughs) 11, 15, looks like 15 eagles over that period at Montezuma. So all these young ones, you know, and we started getting mortalities. A couple were shot in Pennsylvania. A couple were hit by cars. You know, we started, you know, you're expecting these kind of things, too. And Mm -hmm. every one of these eagles that we released was marked with bright yellow wing tags. So we, we knew And they were all banded on their legs, of course, too. So we knew who they were, and we started getting reports coming in. But lo and behold, in the spring of 1980, when those first two 1976 eaglets would be four years old, we got a report near Watertown, New York, of a nesting pair of adult bald eagles. And by four years old... Unless you're really up close to the eagles, they look like an adult bald eagle with a full white head and tail. But these eagles were four years old. And don't I go to the nest the first year that they were active there? And it's the same two eagles. It's Henry and Agnes that we released (laughs) four years. What are the odds that those two would survive, not only survive and find themselves, but breed? you know, in, in New York State, 84 miles from their release location. Wow. Um, so that was, that was, we were just on cloud nine. I mean, that was just way more than anyone could possibly expect that you you release two eaglets and four years later, they'd be nesting on their own. And they had two young, their very first year, they nested there. So I banded those two young. Um, wow
1: now with with ex, with each uh successful project w- would you relocate uh to a different area of of New York state did you guys go all around New York state
0: we did but you can imagine once 1980 success hit we we said hey this is a workable program now it's not experimental anymore this is exactly what we had hoped would happen Let's go into the expansion phase of this program. So one tower at Montezuma for four years. 1980, we built a tower complex at Oak Orchard Wildlife Management Area out near Batavia, just north of Batavia, near Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. Mm -hmm. Eight compartment, double tiered tower, each compartment holding two or three eaglets. So we said, okay, we can accommodate 20, 22 eaglets in this tower. And, you know, having to have somebody at the hack site, you know, 24 7, seven days a week for months and feeding eaglets, why not feed 22 as well as you can feed two or four? Yeah. So the obviously next step is hey, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we'd like 22 eaglets this year. Where do you go, 22 eaglets, when throughout the United States, they're an endangered species in all but five states? The five states that weren't endangered were listed as threatened. Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and uh, Michigan. So they were threatened in those five states. So none of those states, none of the lower 48 states, obviously, could give us that number of eaglets. Bald Eagle Act says you can't go to Canada. You cannot internationally transport eagles from Canada. So what's left? Alaska. Yeah. (laughs) Alaska was an abundant supply of bald eagles. It really our only option. So we wrote up a, a proposal, said why we think it would work to go to Alaska and bring them back to New York. And, of course, we ran into naysayers about this project because people are saying, what? You can't you can't bring Alaskan Eagles back to the east to New York, different different genetic strain, blah, blah blah, blah blah. Well, we countered all those arguments. Um, you know, if anything, I don't believe it is a, a truly different genetic strain. I think most all the Eagles are are pretty close in behavior and physiology and everything else. Um, but be that as it may, the argument is also that, okay, so, we have no eagles left in the state functionally. We've released a whole bunch from the Midwest states and from a captive breeding facility, but what we need is a new genetic infusion to rebuild the population. So that's exactly what we need. If that's the case, mm-hmm. so we won all the arguments. And in 1980, we, it was the first year we went to Alaska to collect collect bald eagles and get into what we call mega hack process. <laughs> where we're releasing 20 to 20-plus 20 eaglets every year at a different facility. So started out at Oak Orchard with our second release site. And again, the key factors we we, we look to, today, wherever we're going to release eagles, um, historic eagle breeding location, abundant food supply, easy food supply, clean food supply, limited human disturbance. And Oak mm-hmm. Orchard being a protected wildlife management area, built perfectly. We, we did that for two years only. Then we went up to the Adirondacks, which was a historic Bald Eagle breeding location, and set up a, a hacking site uh, on a piece of private property just outside of Tupper Lake called Fallensby Pond, 15,000-acre preserve with a 1,000-acre lake. Beautiful, beautiful site, and I'm so happy that the private landowners Uh, John and and Bird was her name. John and Bird McCormick from Vermont owned this place. We explained what we wanted to do. They said, come on in. And basically, we built a huge hacking tower tree fort within huge hemlock trees on the southeast corner of the lake for which will be our hacking location. And you might have seen pictures, I don't know, in some of the conservationist articles or some of the stuff but after we were bringing Eagles from Alaska in on an airplane a special flight from Juneau to to uh, Lake Clear Airport in the Adirondacks then we had to put them all on a boat and boat them down to the end of the lake and I was just sweating that none of the freights would fall off the boat or something like that just all we need but anyway there was quite a, it was quite an ordeal and quite a an event to get the Eagles into this situation and then our last, Of four release locations in New York was right here in central New York or eastern New York in the Albany area on a private reservoir area that's the uh, city of water supply for Albany called the Alcove Reservoir. And we released eagles there for a number of years just to spread out all these young eagles in different environments in New York State, thinking that they would reoccupy any suitable areas, you know, in their. White path, basically. And uh, over a 13-year period, going to Alaska and doing all this hacking work from 1976 to 1988, we released 198 eaglets in the state by hacking. Now, we had set, as part of our our plan, which we, we diligently wrote lots of plans, it said, when we reach in the state 10 nesting pairs that are productive on their own, we can stop hacking. We can stop releasing bald eagles because that input from 10 breeding pairs, even if they only produce one young each, or one or two usually is the average, um, they will take over the annual input into the population. So that happened in 1988. So that was the last year we hacked eagles in New York. And then uh, we started simply shifting our management um, into Monitoring all of the nests, protecting all the nests we could, uh, identifying where they were, uh, banding all the young that were produced, determining the productivity every year, things like that. So that, in a nutshell, is what we did.
1: Wow! Now, these were all for the for the bringing them in from Alaska and other places. These were all eaglets. Eaglets. They were never adult or mature eagles.
0: No, never. That would be wow. very hard to these were all nestling eaglets that I would climb trees with some other guys in Alaska, big trees, collect the eaglets. Uh, We chartered jet aircraft uh, every year to go back and forth. I mean, we didn't want to take any chances with commercial aircraft. We wanted to get the eaglets we needed, get them on an airplane, and get them back to New York State ASAP. Um, So that's what we did.
1: What was uh? If do you have any like uh? What was the mortality rates uh, of of these uh, kind of like missions? Was it was it a a good percentage or did they all do very very well?
0: Well, in the in the actual transfer process, we moved two hundred and two eaglets. We fledged one hundred ninety eight. Wow. We lost four in transit. Um, wow, which is pretty good. Now, as far as mortality after they fledged into the environment, that's very tough to keep track of. But I can tell you that of all the eaglets we released, we do know that 17 percent were confirmed dead from one reason or another. Shooting, uh, hit by vehicles, things like that. Um, Wow.
1: That's a heck of a success rate.
0: Probably more than that. I mean, the, the mortality rate was probably more than that.
1: Now, I, I know that this isn't a question I, I have on there, Adams. Why why did you find people would freaking shoot these things? These are beautiful creatures just for, I don't know, like statues or something like that? What the hell?
0: Hey, when you find out, would you tell me? Uh, okay. Yes, it, it's very annoying. I mean, the, the incidents of shooting now in 2020, 22, I haven't heard of one in a long time. Yeah. Um but back in the back in the '80s and even in the '90s, we were getting quite a few shot in New York, but I I hate to say more in Pennsylvania. Wow! And you know whether people think, you know, I mean, there was a bounty on eagles in Alaska right through the 1950s. I mean, because the fishermen thought they were out competing them for the fish oh. resource. Up there. So you know. People have weird ideas that, you know, the eagles might be competing with game animals. I don't know. But or they just get their jollies by shooting a big bird. I don't know. Wow. But fortunately, that that seems to have really died back.
1: Good. That is very good. Um, So, of course, between the 1970s, 80s and 90s and even 2000s, times have definitely changed. What would you have done differently with the technology we have right now of course tracking was a big thing is is a big thing still now but what could you have done differently with the technology we have right now
0: i think not much in the process i don't think but i think we we probably and we did get better with this as as each hacking site was developed we were using um you know closed circuit television systems on a pole out in front of these big hacking complexes to zoom, pan, and tilt in and watch the eaglets that were in the cages, see who was feeding, who wasn't feeding, see if any of the eagles had problems. Um, we did run into a, a case at the Alcove Reservoir where we were feeding frozen fish, and some of the eagles in the cages were starting to look lethargic. They just weren't acting right. It turned out they had a vitamin vitamin B deficiency because they were getting frozen fish. Wow. And so we had, to, we had to make sure we were getting enough fresh fish to feed them, so things like that. But we were using closed-circuit TV to monitor these, and that, that signal would run back to a, a station, usually like a truck camper where our people slept and, and could monitor the eagles. You know, got notebooks full of d- notes that they were taking every day on the Eagles welfare and stuff. Um, so that would be you know, probably you know an upgrade in that technology, an upgrade in the tracking system we use rather than just using plastic wing markers and small radio transmitters with a small battery. you know now they're using satellite trackers and all kinds of things on oh, Eagles yeah. could have done that better which would have given us a better handle on the actual mortality rate of all these eagles as they dispersed. But um, not much more than that. I I can't think of anything else.
1: Yeah. Like the, I mean, even the the transporting and and keeping the eaglets would probably be the same as it, as it was back then, because what else could you do? What what else differently can you do?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know as you could do anything different. Yeah. We had to construct special, Special crates for each eaglet uh, we took up to Alaska, empty, and then took them back. It was funny, the the jet that we used to use, a King Air 200, they call it, um, usually, I don't know how many people, they actually hold 16, maybe something like that, but in preparation for us doing this work, they would strip everything out of the airplane and line the whole fuselage with plastic because... Uh the Eagles, you know we call it muting, but they would defecate you know um a lot, <laughs> especially if they were <laughs> and there were all these air baffles, all these holes around the bottoms of the crates, and when the the airplane was full with eaglets, um they were stacked three high in the fuselage, and you know whitewash would be coming out from the holes <laughs> and these splattered on the side of the airplane, so the pilots learned real quickly to line everything with plastic. And, wow. And, uh,
1: so, with the, the hacking phase when you had to get these uh, eagles from another place, how, I'm, I'm curious, how big were the eagles? Like that? the size of your hand, or were they bigger than that?
0: I'd say you, you know what a crow size is, roughly. Yeah. I'd say they're at least crow size, if not bigger. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, they were, especially the females, which are you really can't tell bald eagles apart uh, morphologically, uh, except that anybody who gets a really close look or knows eagles or handles eagles uh, can see that a female has much bigger feet, fatter tarsus, uh, fatter bill, longer bill. Yeah, the beak is different, right? Yeah, a little wider, a little longer. If you lined up 20 eagles, you could tell which ones were the females, mostly. Um, They're a little heavier. So some of the birds were pretty big when we got them into these crates. And I think that's why, you know, some of them just were too cramped in there and didn't make it when we got back, you know. just Yeah. Now, um, Very few, unfortunately.
1: Now, did you have any close calls uh, when you were doing this project? like with yourself, I would say with yourself or with other bald Eagles, like attacking you.
0: <laughs> I've had a few generally when you climb a nest, Eagles are kind of wimpy. They just, they fly off the nest scared and start chittering at you, ah! you know, like get out of here. What are you doing? Um, and, you know, just fly away. And if you spend any time up in the nest, eventually they, you get farther and farther away and just kind of give up on it. But um Every once in a while, especially with a female, you get a you get a bird that wants to hurt you. <laughs> and uh, i I've had this a uh, couple of places that I, I could tell you about um where the female comes at me every year <laughs> and when I go up to ban the chicks. I mean, to the point where you know I'm one hundred and ten feet up in the tree, uh, up on the side of the nest, trying to do my work, all this gear spread out. And in front of me in this, this, I'm constantly having to watch this pair of eagles coming at me from behind. They, they, they know they, they come at you around the backside. Unless you turn and make eye contact, the last second they veer off. And one of the worst nests was that first nest up in Watertown by Henry and Agnes. Agnes just wa- wanted to hurt me. She <laughs> was always <laughs> coming at me. Um, very, very. Diligent protector of her young. Another um, time in Alaska, we had a female. Uh, we would get up there and we'd start out by surveying about 300 miles of shoreline in Alaska by a small helicopter, trying to map out where the eaglets were of suitable age that we would then visit by a boat and climb the tree and collect the eagles. So we'd do two or three days of helicopter surveying. And I remember one time uh, in, a big female eagle started coming we're we're approaching the nest to look at see what we could see was in the nest and she came at us and i could see the blood in her eyes i mean she was staring us down (laughs) head on into the bubble of the helicopter and uh the guy basically threw the stick to the right just just moved out really quickly and if he hadn't i think we would have had a collision there Wow. You know, I love a close call. I've had a couple of close calls climbing, but one other I remember distinctly in Alaska was uh when uh, I was up in a tree, banded you know, collected the eaglet, lowered it down in, in a sack, and I was coming out of the tree. And I was a younger man then and and uh, we used to what we call cowboy a little bit, you know. You'd you'd jump back off the trunk of the tree and slide down twenty, thirty feet, rapes on your on your rope and you know get a good swing and then go, you know, go all the way down. Well, one time I did that, I was, I was probably still about 30 feet off the ground and I took a big long slide down the rope and put the brakes on and the rope took first bounce, but then it went snap and the rope broke. And I fell about the last 30 feet back onto the ground on my back. Uh Um, And it was just, again, like, divine intervention that i didn't hit a stump or something like that i just hit the duff and uh that was that i was fine but uh i could have so easily just you know ha- impaled myself on something uh, wow that, that taught me that taught me a very important lesson because uh you know we'd be we'd be on this main vessel that the u.s fish and wildlife service used in alaska called the surf bird and that was our home for a week while we collected eagles and we take two skiffs. There was two climbing crews. I led one, and a guy named Dave Evans from Minnesota, who I brought along every year, led the other climbing group. And we take these skiffs ashore to the nest that we had plotted out from the helicopter, and we'd leapfrog down the shoreline collecting eagles. And, you know, I never thought much of it. I'd throw my rope on the bottom of the skiff, and these ropes are nylon, uh, nylon coating and nylon core. And I'm sure what happened is that It must have gotten a little bit of oil or oil gas mixture on on the rope. And that's death to nylon just eats right through it. Yeah. So ever since that incident, you know, I don't let anybody touch my rope. I'm very careful with my ropes.
1: Yeah. So now, of course, we all know like um, bald eagle talons are massive, sharp and stuff like that. Did you ever get, not saying stabbed, but very close calls with one of the talons like them attacking you?
0: Well, I've gotten more than that. I've gotten <laughs> full-footed. I got full-footed. We did a lot of work. We're talking about restoration here, but we did a lot of eagle research with wintering bald eagles, especially in Sullivan and Delaware counties and along the Delaware River um, for many years. We we captured probably 100 or more bald and golden eagles uh, in the wintertime down there putting On long term satellite tracking radios, tracking them to their breeding grounds up in Quebec and Labrador. And we, to do that, we used something called a rocket net. We would put a deer carcass out on the ice, set the rocket net about 30, 30 yards away from uh, the deer carcass, wait for eagles to come in and start feeding, and then detonate the rocket net. So, make a long story short, the rocket net would deploy. It would float down over the eagles on the carcass and they'd be under there not very happy (laughs) so then you have to go and and extricate the eagles out of the nest which out of the net which is sometimes easier said than done and it was about 10 below zero i remember this one day and uh i was trying i I had my gloves off because you can't really do much with with gloves on in that kind of situation. So, I was reaching down to to lift the net partially off this this eagle. It was on its back, you know, squawking at me and and looking very ferocious. And it shot it shot one leg out between this two inch square mesh that the nest net has, and it just fully got me on the hand. I wow. still got the scar on my hand. Four, four talons just embedded in my hand. And you probably have never experienced this, which is a good thing. But once they clutch onto something, I mean, they're like iron. You, you, you can't even, you, you grab one with your fingers and try to pry one out. You, you can't. I mean, it, it's, wow. it's like iron in there. It's just so strong. The muscles, you know, that retract those toes are so strong. So. I couldn't get it out of my hand. And she was under the net and my hand was above the net. And I had to call over thank God I wasn't alone. I called over my friend who was with me and uh he pried him out one at a time with both his hands and, and Wow. Of course I was cold enough that it just froze all the blood. So but my hand was stiff for probably two weeks after that. Holy so crap. that that was that was an exciting experience. Exciting. And they, are, they, are, also, they all are, are also very good biters. So you won't, if you're ever holding an eagle, like that picture I sent you of me holding a couple of eagles, you want to keep your face away from from eagles because they will snap and bite you. And, and that beak is very sharp. It's how they rip fish apart.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen pictures. Of course, we've seen pictures and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, being that close, I see, you know, the... The DEC officers and uh, the Forest Rangers releasing the bald eagles, and they're like right, right next to him. And I seriously don't understand why that bald eagle is not pecking at his face. <laughs>
0: sometimes, sometimes they will, believe me.
1: Oh, that's that's scary but amazing stuff. Just imagine, like like you, you get to tell these stories of being uh, almost pecked by a bald eagle or being grabbed on by the talons of a bald eagle. That's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, um, are you still involved with uh the bald Eagles?
0: Well, I am. I retired in two thousand and ten after uh you know thirty eight years with dEC, wow. and uh, we never really talked about it. but, um, when I left in two thousand and ten, I think there were somewhere around two hundred and forty breeding pairs or something like that. Oh, yeah, I mean, just, sorry just, that's not my fault, too. Just just an unbelievable number. We never could have imagined that we would have that many breeding pairs. And now, you know, I've. we don't do... Every year leading up to when I retired, we went to every nest in New York State and ran down every lead on every new nest. We would go to every nest. We'd GPS the nest so we had an accurate location of that nest. We'd count the young. We couldn't do it from the ground. I'd climb every nest, band every eaglet that was born in the state. I probably banded well over a thousand eagles in the state. Wow! So we had an impeccable data source of what was happening with bald eagles through 2010. When I retired and pretty much a lot of people just kind of, you know, didn't want to carry on with that intensity in the whole eagle situation. They do some some uh kind of limited, you know, look at at how many eagle nests and they, they do document new new eagle nests when they get them but nobody's nobody's counting the young every year nobody's banding eagles anymore things like that so we've we've lost a lot of the information but the latest estimate that we have um pretty pretty accurate i would say is somewhere between like 400 and 450 breeding pairs now in New York state wow. which is just wow. unbelievably remarkable in my mind you know, I didn't think we we had enough habitat to support that many eagles.
1: Yeah, I mean, wow the the from one uh, in 1976 to 2022 having over 400. Wow,
0: it's quite a it's quite a, a a success story. And the other interesting thing is when we got our first nest and showed success with the hacking program that it worked in 1980. All of a sudden, my phone started ringing. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, yeah. all these other states started. Hey, can you help us design a hacking program? Can you come down and help us select a release site? Can you do this? Can you do that? So, indeed, I did. Through the eighties, I helped all of those states set up their own hacking stations, release projects, and and got them going. So, combined, all of those states that I mentioned uh, now. Um, Pennsylvania was in the same boat we were. They had one nest uh, in the early 70s in western New York, or western Pennsylvania, and now they've probably got 400 pairs. I mean, all of these states have now really increased the entire population of eagles in in the northeast U.S.
1: You're you're the bald eagle whisperer.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) I had a lot of help. I was blessed to have the opportunity to do this. Yeah. I had i had a lot of help with this i mean it's far from a one-man show
1: oh of course that's that's incredible so um wow um what does the future look like for bald eagles right now
0: well at this point and you know as we've just said given the numbers of nesting pairs and the continued you know good reproduction that that we're seeing and things you know, I don't, I don't see any major population limiting factors coming into play. Two of the major causes of mortality we know about with bald eagles, blunt impact trauma, which means getting hit by cars, getting hit by trains. When I left, one of the biggest factors that I knew about killing bald eagles in New York was the high-speed Amtrak going from Albany to New York City oh, wow. Goes along the, go along the eastern sh- Eastern Shoreline of the Hudson River um they hit deer they hit turkeys they hit other wildlife and the carcasses are on the tracks and the Eagles are all up and down the Hudson River what are they going to do they're going to go down and start feeding on the easy food the carrion that's on the tracks and they're very slow on the get-go same thing with on highways, they see a deer carcass on a highway or an animal carcass. Um, they're very slow, a heavy bird getting up off the ground uh, and they get hit by cars and they were getting hit by trains in, in a major way. We don't even know the extent uh of what what the kill rate is on the on the train tracks, because generally we're not allowed. You know, Amtrak and CSX don't want us on the tracks. So that's. uh Kind of an enigma, and we don't know. I'm sure it's still going on. There's so many eagles on the Hudson River. But the other big factor, and I think this may be the biggest factor affecting bald eagles right now, is lead poisoning. Yeah. And uh, every day, matter of fact, a good friend of mine just told me the other day uh, about two eagles that came in. I think they're down in uh, Sullivan or Delaware County right now at a rehabber. Both tested positive for lead poisoning. You know, hunting season just ended. There's a lot of gut piles and carcasses out there, uh, a lot of lead being consumed, and uh, many, many of the eagles, well over 100 eagles have been confirmed dead of lead poisoning wow. since since 2000, uh, uh, going to the Wildlife Pathology Unit that DEC runs in Del Mar, New York, well over 100 uh, but that's just what we know about. I mean, how many times do people stumble across a, a bald eagle carcass in the wild? You know, not not often. So I think that number is a lot higher. So lead poisoning is a huge issue. Many of the reha- rehabilitators will tell you uh, they get eagles in all the time that are suffering from lead poisoning. And it's very difficult to combat that. Uh, they can undergo chelation, which is very expensive and time consuming to get Eagles, what they think is recovered, but I don't think they're ever fully recovered from the neurological damage that lead causes. You know, yeah. and that's that's one of the, that's one of the things that just really bothers me. That we we know there are non toxic ammunition out there that the ballistics are just as good as lead ammunition, maybe a little bit more expensive. But if we banned lead ammunition, there would certainly be the market would react and provide as much non-lead ammunition and the price would go down. So California banned all all lead ammunition in 2019. Talked to many hunters out there that are very happy with, you know, the non-lead and their hunting hasn't been affected. We've banned lead in almost everything else in society, you know, and it's just a matter of time that lead ammunition has to go. And it's the right thing to do. You know, I think many of the sportsmen really um, agree with this, and many of them have already turned to non-lead ammunition. So I'd, I'd like to see just a full, full-on full transition to non-lead because it's affecting golden eagles, bald eagles, raptors, ravens, anything that's feeding on carcasses. Um, and it, it's just wasteful. It doesn't need to happen.
1: Yeah, I've read about the the lead poisoning in bald eagles and like you said the golden eagles raptors, stuff like that. Um brain deficiency, uh problems in their bones and stuff like that. Um eyesight loss. It's 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 actually very crazy it's of what it can do. It's so it's so diverse of what it could do to a bald eagle let alone, you know, a uh an animal.
0: Yeah, it's tragic to see them, you know, undergoing a uh, lead poisoning is just tragic
1: yeah i mean my lose, uh,
0: lose all motor control yep
1: yeah. one of my the people i interviewed before was uh i don't know if you've heard of it the uh, friends of the feathered and furry uh down in uh near hunter
0: yes yeah i've heard
1: yeah they're yeah. a wildlife rehabilitator and they got a lot they always get bald eagles all the time
0: sure yeah and the more eagles are out there the more they're going to be showing up yeah, we, we dealt a lot with uh, Bill and Stephanie Streeter down at the Delaware Valley Rapture Center in uh, Milford, PA. They, they were a great source for us for getting, you know, sick eagles and, and trying to get them back out into the wild.
1: Nice. Excellent. Do you want to give any, uh, before we end this, do you want to give any shout-outs uh, to anybody? Hopefully they'll be listening.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you... When we were talking about doing this uh, podcast, you, you said, you know, to think about anybody special in, in, uh, like the Catskill region down there that, that I've worked with. And it got me, it got me thinking and, and looking back at some notes and things. I've got a long list of people that <laughs> came to mind, um, that have been just a tremendous help. As I said, you know, this was far from a one man show and part of the, uh, The success really came from the army of volunteers that that wanted to be involved in monitoring nesting eagles, picking up sick and dead eagles, helping me when I visited nest with landowner contacts, getting to the nest, you know, acting as my gaboon, which is the rope guy when you're climbing a tree. you, You name it. Just dozens and dozens of people who have helped me out, Chuck Davis in West Shokan, Kathy Michelle in Narrowsburg, Kathy Maloney in Lordville, Jim Beamer in West Point, Chris in and Ward Blade in New York City DEP, uh, Marty Barco at Orange County Community College, Gene Weinstein and Gene Raponi in the Monticello area, Don Hamilton with National Park Service in Narrowsburg, uh, Scott Van Arsdale, who was uh, DEC Region 4, huge, huge help with all the Bald Eagle and Golden Eagle work uh, down there. Lou Busher from Willow, New York. Uh, Barb Sperry in Univ- Unadilla. I don't know if you knew who Barb was. i um, heard that
1: name. Yeah, Sperry.
0: You know, wonderful, wonderful lady. Uh, Barb Cronk in Franklin, New York. Uh, Valerie Freer, Sullivan County Community College, Renee Davis, Sullivan County Audubon Society, Lori McKean, uh, who set up the Eagle Institute, later with the Delaware Highlands Conservancy, Andy Mason, Delaware Otsego Audubon Society, Scott Rando, a guy from Sheholla, PA, who monitored almost all the Delaware River nests, uh, many years for us, um, I could go on and on, but I mean, so many people I'm so <laughs> thankful for. And I had people like that all over the state. I mean, wow. I, if you look at my 2010, my last Eagle report on, on the DEC website, you'll see in the, in the beginning of it, all the people I list, all the names of people and many hundreds of pictures, uh, of the times we had together with Eagle. So it just, I can't thank all of them enough. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without all of them.
1: Can I look that up on the DEC site?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Sweet. I'm going to look that up and I'm going to definitely go over that one. Excellent. Well, well, excellent. So that kind of concludes our uh, our interview, man. I really appreciate it. But um, one last thing. I have this uh, Mary T Trail, my friend, uh, suggested this. Uh, it's called Post-Hike Brews and Bites. Uh, When visiting the Catskills, of course, you like to go to Westkill. Is there any place else that you like to go to get something to eat or drink?
0: Yes, but I'm not remembering the name of the place. Little Diner in, uh, I don't know, Route 28.
1: uh, Is it it Stanford or that? Yeah. No, no. That's
0: 23,
1: sorry. 28 Um, is the Phoenicia Diner
0: in phoenicia yeah it's in phoenicia yep that's the phoenicia diner
1: nice i haven't heard somebody say that
0: <laughs> no yeah. I, I don't think it's the phoenicia diner there's another name for it but anyway i don't i'll look it up too definitely th- yeah too many things to remember.
1: yeah and also westkill of course we always have that uh i went there as well when i went to the westkill brewing uh before that was that was nice and fun um, had an abandoned hard cider. I'd like to say them again. Uh, I've always loved their stuff. Um, but excellent, Pete. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. Um glad. Thank you for taking your time and to talk about this amazing project that New York State threw together and that you uh, led. Uh, it's, it's very mesmerizing and, and we are very thankful for, for your awesome efforts to do this.
0: Yeah my pleasure stash i thank you for having me and uh like i said i was just blessed to have the opportunity to to lead that program and, and be involved in it
1: excellent well um once again thank you to the monthly supporters uh really appreciate it thank you for the outdoor chronicles photography for sponsoring the show um thank you for all the donated and pete once again thank you for joining the show tonight
0: you're welcome
1: all right have a good night pete
0: Hey guys, I just want to thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and throw down a smooth review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast platform that you use. You can also check daily updates of the podcast, hikes, hiking memes, and local news on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the official website of the show. Remember this, you just keep on living, man. L-I-V-I-N.